Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And you're in for a real treat today because I have Dr. James O'Keefe, who you probably haven't heard of, but I've known about him since I was researching one of my modules for my master class on movement. And his was the most pivotal paper. It really changed my whole views on this. Literally, I started exercising in 1968. So I've been exercising for 53 years and I made a lot of mistakes. And if I would have known the information in this paper, it would have saved me a lot of trouble. And and uh, and we're going to go dive deep into it. And why I'm so excited to have him on is because there was a question in his, in his meta-analysis study that was just published earlier this year uh, that has profound implications about resistance training. So I can't wait to discuss about that. But in the meantime, let's tell you a little bit about him. He is a graduate of the internal medicine residency at Mayo Clinic. And then he went on to do a fellowship in cardiology at Mayo Clinic also. And then he met the love of his life, who he's married to now, and now he's out in Kansas City doing some things. So I'll let Dr. O'Keefe describe his background further and, and rather than me elaborate on it and, and how he's positioned. But thankfully, his the love of his life is also a dietitian, so he has a strong nutritional orientation in addition to preventive cardiology. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Joe. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a Cardiologist, uh, practice uh, clinically in, in Mid-America Heart Institute at St. Luke's Hospital in, in Kansas City. Um, uh, but but I, I spend a lot of time with uh, uh, on research and writing and uh, presenting uh, various topics. And my, my professional passion is, uh, is just cardiovascular health and wellness, well-being. And so your interests and mine align, align nicely along these uh, topics. Yeah, it's very <laughs> unusual for that to happen. Someone in the drama for the traditional model, I'm usually vilified and scorned and viewed as the the devil for the most part. And uh, it's there. I can't tell you how many people like yourself who are so well credentialed and respected that I've attempted the interview and just refused because they went to Wikipedia and looked me up and then they believe Wikipedia, <laughs> which still to this day says I was married to a woman who I only dated and it said and and we stopped dating like four years ago, so just shocking. It's not a good, it's not a credible source of information, but anyway, why don't we go into your meta-analysis study that was published, I believe in July of this year. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, I'll let you discuss it because I'm, I'm going to do a terrible job of summarizing it, but it was, it was really pivotal for me. It was so profoundly powerful because foundationally the core of it is no one's going to dispute how much that everyone needs exercise. If you don't exercise, we know what happens. The ultimate epitome of that is going in microgravity in space, which is like zero exercise, negative exercise. And you're, you, you, they have to, I think it's like exercise for four five, six hours a day just to maintain their bone, their, their structure. Yeah. So fortunately just living on earth, we get a little bit of exercise, but, but we need optimal exercise. The problem, this is the major problem is, how much do you need? Because many of us are really committed to being healthy as we can, tend to overdo it. And that's exactly what I did. 
And if I would have had the information to study, I could have saved myself a lot of time, effort, and grief. And you're going to have this because Dr. Keep is going to explain it to you. Well, yeah, right on, Joe. It's uh, exercise is like if we had a drug that did everything exercise had, I mean, it, it would be by far the most powerful drug for longevity and preventing disease and improving mood and all sorts of things. But, um, but the, 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 the question oh, wait, wait, actually, before we go in there, sorry for interrupting, but you know, one of the curiosity questions I had, and I think it might help frame your perspective on this is what you, there's no way you would do this type of study unless you were personally committed to fitness and you look pretty healthy. I've never met you personally, but so why don't you tell us your experience, your journey with exercise? Yeah. So my family thinks I probably have ADHD. I've always been, <laughs> I've always been hyper. I mean, I've never had trouble focusing, but I'm pretty active and uh, you know, I've always used exercise, like whether I'm nervous or happy or sad, or, you know, it's like exercise is just a, has been like my coping mechanism. And as a kid, I, you know, I, I loved basketball and I played varsity basketball and ran track. And then when I, when I quit playing basketball in college uh, and, and focused on medicine, I, uh, I made a personal note that I have to exercise every day because this is super important for me. And somehow a lot of people have this notion that like, if some is good, like more is better, like hammering mm -hmm. the body. So I got into triathlons and I was, you know, running, you know, 5k, 10k races and occasional marathon. I was really, really fit. And I was just pushing my body. And when I got to be about 45, I realized, you know, I started to get palpitations. And, and I realized like, sometimes I'd get this aching after a really high, hard, uh, high intensity, like bike ride or, things like that. And I, and I realized, wait a minute, like, where did I get this notion? Like if exercise is good, like this extreme exercise in middle age is, is better. It's just not. And so I started, doing some, I just started some, doing some research, you know, with, uh, I have a lot of connections all around the world, you know, and in, in uh, the uh, clinical research community. And we started looking at this question and sure enough, it's like, it, it's, it's quite obvious that, yeah, you can overdo exercise. And I had been, and I did a TED talk on it. It's, it's, it's uh, seen millions of view, views, and um, and I've just focused on this, and 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 also, you know, changed my life personally too. I, I realized like exercise is good for you, and and just to sort of echo your com comments, Dr. Mercola, is that um, seventy percent of the of the U.S. adults don't get enough exercise, and they would be healthier getting more exercise, any exercise. In fact, the first twenty minutes of exercise that you do will get you most of the benefits even getting out for a walk is dramatically better than sitting on the couch or sitting in front of a screen or you know sitting behind a windshield you know that we have a sedentary lifestyle and if you don't actively fight to kind of incorporate movement into your day you know you're going to be in trouble no question about it just like following the standard american diet will absolutely get you in trouble there's no question but but about two percent of people are overdoing it you know, overachievers, like, you, yeah, well, it might be 5%, you know, depending wow. on, you know, we're both, we're both in that 2%. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sort of overachiever kind of, like I say, you know, uh, highly active people, uh, you know, competitive people. And, you know, I, it's probably because the world you live in, the world I live in, like, like, I know a lot of people like this. I see patients like this all the time because I've written on this a lot. And they come with AFib or accelerated atherosclerosis with a lot of calcium in their coronaries or, or uh, ventricular uh, problems, and and it can even shorten your lifespan if you get really extreme about it. But 
Um, but so the, the I would be a little more uh, stern about that. I think it will shorten your lifespan unless you address it, which is why we're having this discussion because you want we want to define the sweet spot. Yeah, and that is the tricky part. Like I had a I had a a, a, a wise mentor up the Mayo Clinic decades ago, and I'd be going out for a run at lunchtime, you know, and he'd say, you know, James, you're just uh, wasting your heartbeats. Uh, you know, you only, your heart has only so many heartbeats. It's like, and if you look out in nature, you know, you can kind of make that case that like a, a hummingbird has a heart rate of 150, I mean, 500 beats a minute and lives like a year or two, like a mouse does, who also has a similar heart rate. And, and animals that have really slow heart rates, like a whale uh, can live 200 years. And if you do the math, you know, it does look like part of the sort of programmed life expectancy, how many heartbeats you have. So at, at first blush, you'd say, well, then for sure, that, that I'm going I'm to sit on the couch then. But no, if you do math, and it's a complex math problem, like you do enough exercise during the day to, to, uh, to stay very fit. So your pulse is nice and low the, when you're not exercising. <clears throat> That's the way to maximize your heartbeat. But you don't. You don't want to be exercising intensely for five, seven hours a day, you know, let alone do a full distance triathlon. It's like you're just asking way too much of your heart. So there's kind of a sort of a, an intuitive logic about this as well. Like everything in nature, you know, you're better off not in the extremes. And, mm -hmm. and that's true with exercise. So there's and we've been doing a lot and, and we, you know, we have plenty of time to talk about this. But but it's so fascinating that when you kind of drill down on what types of exercise really correlate best with longevity. It's not the maximum amount of high intensity interval training or, you know, I mean, some of that's important, but, uh, but more is not necessarily better for vigorous, intense exercise. Like where this recent, um, where this recent uh, a systematic review that we did found it, it, it looked at um, a large group, and this has been when you look at at all these groups, you'll call you'll see what I call the reverse J curve, where like uh, from starters, let me like draw a J, a reverse J. So like like from people who are who are sedentary, once they start exercising, you get like a, a dose dependent decrease in the in mortality during follow up and, and diabetes, depression, high blood pressure, coronary disease, you know the the, the osteoporosis, sarcopenia falls, all these things, you get this very precipitous drop down to a nadir of about 45%. So you can mm -hmm. like, you can kind of really slow aging and improve life expectancy dramatically with exercise. But then at the very, the very high end, the people that are doing the highest volume of vigorous exercise, they lose some of that benefit. They're, they're not as bad off as sedentary people, but they definitely on all, virtually every study you can find they lose, and it's a small proportion of people, like we talked about, that where they will lose some of those benefits for more for longevity, for um, and certainly for things like atrial fibrillation. We see a drop in atrial fibrillation in people who are um, uh, who are from sedentary to, to if you exercise moderately, you have less uh, atrial fibrillation. But if you if you're doing full distance triathlons when you're over age forty or forty five you start seeing like a 500 to 800% increase in, in atrial fibrillation. And, and I think that's kind of, I was feeling some palpitations, I never had any AFib, but I have a lot of friends who have had just for that reason, just for excess training. But there's a fascinating study recently showing that um, a, big meta, a, big, a big study of like a million people followed for uh, more than 10 years, and they found that vigorous exercise 
up to 75 minutes per day reduce the risk even up to I'm not yeah up to not 75 minutes per day but 75 minutes per week or 150 minutes per week even even that might improve a little bit where you have these reduction in all cause mortality and other diseases but then it plateaued out after that the people that are doing four five six seven hours of vigorous exercise didn't get any benefit and probably from a cardiovascular standpoint lost a little bit but if you look at the people doing moderate exercise and vigorous exercise if you want to like define it loosely would be um, exercising to the point where you're having a hard time carrying on a conversation at all. I mean, you're just breathless. You're, you know, you can't talk. You can't even hardly think about a conversation. You're just, you know, you're, you're, you're really hammering it. So, um, but moderate exercise is like, you know, you're a little winded, but you can carry on sort of like a, you know, a, uh, a conversation. Um, but, but it's not going to be, uh, like comfortable, like, like we're sitting now having a conversation, but so, if you look at moderate exercise, that is very clear that more is better. You can't overdo moderate exercise. We're talking gardening, housework, walking, recreational bike riding, you know, yoga, you know, like, like, like non-intense swimming. Those kind of exercises are um, pickleball is real popular these days, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these things, like more is better, number one. Number two, that, let me just hold you there for a moment because that is such a profound statement. You can't overdo moderate exercise. Right. Who would have known? Yeah. Which is exactly converse to the vigorous exercise. You yeah. can easily do it. You can. And we'll talk about resistance training, which is, I don't think you've discussed yet, which is even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not only can, can you not overdo moderate exercise, at least the latest studies would suggest that, but moderate exercise improves all-cause survival better than vigorous exercise, about two times that. If you look at the people who are doing the most vigorous exercise compared to the people doing the most moderate exercise, the moderate exercises have twice as good a reduction in long-term uh, mortality as, as the high-volume vigorous exercisers. So it's like not only um, don't you need to be overdoing the really strenuous exercise, but it's counterproductive if you're trying, it's not counterproductive if you're trying to win your age group or you're trying to set a personal record or all that kind of stuff. But like once you get past 45 or 50, like exercise should be like fun, stress reducing, you know, keep you fit. But like, you know, you have to be careful not to get too competitive about it. And, mm -hmm. and, that kind of, and that's kind of the, to me, the most important thing is you need to find activity that, that feels like fun. That, that yeah, I, in your paper, I think you discussed the ideal exercise. It's not an isolated or solo exercise. It's a social exercise. So rather than walking alone, you walk with a group of friends or you're playing like pickleball yeah. or you're, you're engaged with your friends. It's this social com community aspect of exercise that is so important. And you totally miss that out when you're in competition mode and you're training like crazy and wasting your time, effort, and effort and losing the social social aspect of life. Yeah, Joe, like we did a study, a, a study that's been, you know, that was written up in the New York Times in 2018 with uh, some colleagues from Copenhagen. And there's this Copenhagen City Heart Study. They've been following 11 or 12,000 people for like 40 years now, really long follow, uh, young to middle-aged people and following virtually their whole adult lives. And, um, and we asked the question because they had the granularity around what kind of physical activity they were doing. We asked the question, what type of uh, exercise or sport confers longevity best. And they had a list of things they're keeping track of, like running, swimming, cycling. They're huge cycle fans. You know, if you've ever been to Copenhagen, like a third mm -hmm. 
you know, a population commutes by, by bike to work. It's nice and flat there. And it's really amazing and inspiring. But they're also into tennis, and pickleball. They do calisthenics. They, you know, they, they had a thing called, you know, um, fitness uh, club activities, which are grouped weightlifting and, and, uh, and treadmill elliptical altogether. They had uh, data on soccer, golf, um, um, badminton. They're big on badminton uh, and tennis. So, uh, so we looked at this and, and, and then we did this complex multivariable analysis to find out how much time they were doing each sport. And, and I went over there to, to go over these results with them. We sat down, look at it. And I looked at the first, uh, at, at this complex multivariable analysis. And I said, well, that's too bad. This obviously is just nonsense. It's like tennis was 9.5 years and badminton was like seven years and running, swimming, cycling were like three and a half years life expectancy. <laughs> <laughs> compared to you know to compared to the sedentary people, I said, "Oh, this." But then I started thinking of it. It's just your point, Joe. It's like the the sports that are social, like the number one predictor of longevity, health, and happiness in humans. We're such a social species is connections, social connections. If you can exercise and make social connections at the same time, that is oh. an absolute you know, gold mine of a, of a longevity uh, activity. And so that means like, even like walking with your dog or your friend mm -hmm. or your neighbor or like pickleball is huge. I mean, you talk to pickleball players like that, you know, improves their friend group. It, it improves their mobility. They sleep better. It's a stress before it's a stress reducer. Before we had benzodiazepines and antidepressants and pain relievers, like play, I call it vitamin P play did like prayer did a lot of those things you go and play and have fun like it's it's one thing like you we work hard all day you know and you come home and then you go for another workout enough work already right like like you don't have to convince kids to go play they just now and adults too adults should be playing i think you, you should find somebody to play with twice a week and however you define that play but play is so important for mental health and it's the best way to improve your longevity from exercise standpoint. And those are generally, you know, moderate exercise, whether you're playing volleyball or pickleball or basketball or softball or tennis or golf or, you know, anything, a pool for that matter. My grandson and I were, you know, playing pool last night after we went over and jumped on the trampoline together. It's like the, the whole thing is move your body in a fun, playful manner and, 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 and make it, make it social. And that is such good news. I think, you know, the 70% of the people are sedentary. Uh, some may be inhibited from participating in exercise because they see the elite athletes and all the hard effort they're putting in, and they don't understand that it can be fun. Mm -hmm. it, could, it could radically increase your lifespan, not only your lifespan, but the quality of your life and yeah. reduce your risk of all these chronic degenerative diseases. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you don't yeah, you don't need to hurt yourself. You don't need you like you don't need to go anywhere near a gym. You don't need a gym membership. You don't feel intimidated by you know like the like the you know exercise addicts over at the gym and you know and but but it's um but it's just hard for people to kind of get out of that mode. That's why if you could find something to play, that mm -hmm. would help a lot. And then the other thing I'm a really big fan of Joe is um, activity trackers. I mean, some people <clears throat> some oh yeah, people yeah like them and some don't, but to me, if you can gamify that a little bit, you know, like like I have a Fitbit on one wrist uh, and, um, <clears throat> and an Apple Watch on the other, so I love these kind of things. And and, and I, do, I do the Aura. 
Oh, the or is another great one. And, and, and I get into like a um, group uh, with my uh, with family and friends. And then we, you know, we kind of have a little, you know, friendly competition about see how many, how many steps you got. I mean, it's, it's, it, it really helps, you know, they, the, the first step in, in changing anything is measuring it, you know, and, yeah, and so yeah. measure your activity and say, oh, you know, just gradually increase it. And there's a lot of good data showing that, um, that like for each, the average American gets about 3,800 steps a day, which, mm-hmm. is, which is not quite two miles. Um, but like that's about, a, that's about um, 2,000 steps per mile. And for every thousand steps you get on average per day, it reduces your, um, your, your like mortality by, by something like 10% or 15%. Yeah, what, what you take in the literature? Cause when I reviewed it, it was seemed somewhat, um, not controversial, but it, it wasn't clear. So, some studies show that there wasn't an improvement. The more you get, like you said earlier with, with moderate activities, sky's the limit. The more you do the, the increased benefit as far as we know, but do, what your what's your review of the literature? Do, can you still? Oh, yeah. get- there's Joe. There's been more and more studies on this uh, all the time, like um, using these um, activity trackers. Because now mm-hmm. you're getting big data, like the UK Biobank, which is a half a million people, and, and there's a, a, a sizable subgroup of them who have been wearing activity trackers and being followed for ten years now. Um, <clears throat> so, so clearly more is better. Up to like you get the big gains going from these sedentary lifestyles, like 2,000, 3,000 steps a day, up to um, up to seven or 8,000, you have, there's a very steep improvement in, in, in mortality, you know, or I should say reduction in mortality, improvement in survival. And then it continues to kind of trail down to about 12,000 steps a day. And most of the studies uh, show that it plateaus out at 12,000. Okay, I that's the turn out or result yeah, or yeah, conclusion. Yeah. Okay. And I haven't really seen the upturn in the J curve at 16,000. You know, some people get that. Like I, I get like 16,000 steps a day just again, because I'm so generally active. But, um, but, but the, um, but I, but there's another recent study that, that also looked at, um, at like sort of, just little exercise snacks. We're looking at people who take the stairs, who, who do some vigorous exercise for just 30 seconds or 45 seconds, you know, just like lifting something heavy, doing gardening, whatever, where you sprinkle in some, some higher intensity stuff that also adds to the baseline of, of just mm-hmm. getting, getting steps. And when you think about our evolutionary roots, that's kind of what, what our ancestors do. They were walking, you know, there, there's, there's studies of hunter gatherers where they would walk, you know, six or eight miles a day. The males more like eight miles, which is like sixteen thousand steps, and the females more like, like, uh, like six miles. Um, but they and they were carrying stuff a lot of the time. They're carrying water, babies, wood, you know, food, shelter. You know, they were carrying all the time. Um, and occasionally they were really exerting themselves. You know, mm-hmm. felling a tree or or you know, in the final stages of the hunt or you know. So it's kind of. This stuff is very intuitive from if you think back about our deep evolutionary roots, this is what we're meant to do. And by the way, we were all generally doing it with our tribal mates, you know, yeah, we were doing right. it socially, you know, so, so, and, and to me, that's just, you know, one of the joys of life is exercising, especially as a male, you know, females are better at, at sort of cultivating social networks uh, on their own, but males away, afraid from work. You know, lots of times don't have a, a real deep, like, circle of friends, and and if they do, the best way to cultivate that and maintain it is find something to do with your buddies. You know, hunting or fishing or 
or, or playing a game like golf or tennis or pickleball or badminton or, you know, anything really just whatever, whatever you find fun, I think is just so important. You know what? I couldn't agree more. And when I was doing the research for my movement module in my master class, uh, I, one of the studies I reviewed diff, uh, uh, pointed out what the origin of the 10,000 steps per day was. Are you familiar with that story? The, yeah. the Japanese pedometer yeah. in the sixties, in the sixties, but it appears that they had no evidence for that recommendation. None. It was just a pure marketing, but it turns out it was right. <laughs> pretty close to the truth. Yeah. yeah. Somebody was probably pretty intuitive. You know, they just uh, had noticed that, you know, that, that in an active healthy day, that, that seems like, you know, a good target, but you're right. It was just purely a marketing ploy for a mechanical pedometer back in, in Japan and, you know, 60 years ago. Now, some of our viewers, actually a large portion of the population, independent of our viewers, you know, they're t really tightly strapped on funds. So a fitness tracker, like an Apple watch or Fitbit, and I don't recommend the Fitbit, not because it's not a good device, it's because it was purchased by Google in 2019. And Google is the, one of the heads of the global cabal, in my view. You know, they, they steal your data. They're, 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 they're taking your data to brainwash you for the you know, conventional narrative. So I, I'm strongly opposed to any Google product, including Google Chrome, Google Search, all of them, Google Gmail. You know, stay away from Google. But the... Um, where was I going with that? Oh, the activity <laughs> tracker? Oh, the activity tracker, right. For people who can't afford it, many people aren't aware that your phone has a free activity tracker. You don't have to buy anything. It's your phone. You mm -hmm. can do it. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, exactly. You just have to wear your phone while you're going for your walk. Yeah, that's the only problem. And obviously, I would recommend putting in airplane mode because EMFs are a real deal. Yeah. And I was, I was just teaching at an uh, autism event over the weekend. And this was called Documenting Hope. It was in Orlando. And this is a really good group because they had they, they committed to research. And they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do these very detailed analysis of these autistic children. And, they, and the intention was to identify the, the causes of autism. And I almost fell off my chair when I heard the results. EMF was the number two cause of autism, number two. Number one was antibiotics. Number three was toxins. And number four was vaccines. It was crazy. But anyway, I thought it was, it was an interesting tangent. Just, just highlighting the importance of how, how important EMFs are. Now, if you're an adult, you're not going to get autism, but it just shows that it can cause neurological damage. So don't put that phone in airplane mode or out of airplane mode when you're wearing it <laughs> or put it in a Faraday bag. Well, we should probably chat a little about uh, strength training too, because I think that's yeah, a that was the next step, a hundred percent, because that was the, the the what motivated me to contact you, because I had a lot of questions on not a lot, but a significant one. So enlighten us, because that that it, it shocked me. It, it radically changed my exercise program after reviewing that. Yeah, strength training is again very important, um, and if you look at um, at the benefits, you know it will improve muscle. Uh, mass and muscle strength. It will uh, improve bone strength. It's a good booster of testosterone. It's it it uh, it helps to um, uh, improve mood. Um, it it helps to prevent falls. And the thing is, as we get past age, even age thirty, we start to lose muscle mass. So, and if you don't do specific training to maintain muscle mass, you it will erode, and you end up 
with what we call sarcopenia, uh, which is not enough uh, muscle mass or osteoporosis. These are very, very common problems. Even people that have obesity, we call it like, you know, like abdominal obesity with, with sarcopenia is a really common thing because mm-hmm. if you don't, if you don't train that. So, so I, um, I've always been a fan of, of, uh, strength training. And again, my intuition kind of aligned with these latest studies in that, um, that when you add strength training to aerobic exercise, like we're talking about moderate exercise and moderate exercise can often be a mixture of, you know, of of moderate cardio exercise and strength training, like gardening, for example, one of my favorite things to do is gardening out there, digging holes and dragging trees around and, you know, bags of mulch. And, you know, I mean, it it can be pretty, um, you know, you're using some muscles there besides just getting your heart rate up. But not to mention getting probiotics from the soil and vitamin D from the sun and, you know, mood boosting from the fresh air and, you know, visiting with the neighbors as they're walking by. I mean, it's all good. Um, In fact, on a tangent, I think that like, again, sort of like, like paying attention to what humans need is like that social connection. I think, you know, nurturing other life like dogs or cats or gardens, you know, houseplants, these things are all not to mention, you know, paying attention to your neighbors and, and, and well, all those relationships are so are so important, but, but relationships with animals like dogs, Mm -hmm. huge, I often write a prescription, you know, one dog taken for a walk, once or twice a day, refill as needed, you know, and I insist that my patients, especially if they've had a dog and the dog died and said, I just don't know that I can do another dog. He said, No, like your health depends on you mental and physical health. But back to the strength training thing is, um, so again, the devil is in the details about the dosing. And when you look at the dose, when you look at people who do strength training, um, it adds another 19% reduction in all-cause mortality compared to the reduction, the 45% reduction that you get from- So it's on top of 40%. On top so of 59% total. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and that's like, if you're doing the optimal amount of, 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 of moderate exercise, which is about an hour a day, you know, of moderate mm-hmm. exercise, you should be moving at least an hour a day. So that is precisely why I contacted you for this interview, because it's such a small amount of, of exercise that how do you count it? Because there's so many different ways that you can do strength training. You, you know, you could, you could take a five minute rest between sets. You can do, you know, five reps. I mean, there, there's, how, how is that calculated? Cause it wasn't clear in the, in the analysis. It wasn't clear. And, and it is a little tricky. Again, the devil's in the details and you have to use some intuition. I mean, when I strength train, I go to the gym and I spend about anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes and I do at least 10 lifts and, and I try to use weights that I can, that I can do 10 reps. Sometimes I can't quite do 10 reps, like 10 pull-ups or, uh, or 10 squats or, you know, that uh, the, there's a variety of full body weight, you know, like strength training, you know, arms and legs, you know, and, and these are like lunges and, and as I mentioned, squats and, and we do like, they're called man makers where you do a push up with a bell, barbell in each hand and pull, uh, I mean, barbell, but dumbbell in each hand. But in any event, like you do 10 and then you pretty much can't do any more than that. Like that's about as much as I feel good about doing, you know, after that you're feeling sort of like spent and, and whatnot. And so if you do that and it takes a couple of days to recover from that. So if mm-hmm. you do that two at the most three times a week, that looks like the sweet spot for, 
for mm-hmm. strength and for conferring longevity. But like you say, some people, you know, go to the gym and lift, do one thing and then they'll kind of, you know, socialize. socialize. <laughs> well, they, usually it's not socializing, it's usually staring at their phone. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's true. It's like you look around the gym, most people, if they're not on a treadmill or something, and again, you know, hearkening back to that that study of the the Copenhagen City Heart Study, like as big of a, as as important as strength training is, in that study, the people doing the health health club activities, weightlifting, treadmill, all kind of stuff, they had a very meager improvement in long term life expectancy. It was only one point five years compared to sedentary people, whereas <laughs> like you know, badminton was seven years, you know, tennis was nine and a half years, like crazy. So it's important. But um, but the health club activities generally are are solitary. You know, you're lifting weights, you get your headphones in. People like they come over to like share a thing, and it looks at somebody looks at you like you know, get out of my space. What are you doing here? It's like the opposite of social, almost. You know, and so anti-social. Yeah. So so the the point is like that, and and maybe I'll show this uh, that that your listeners can can look at the um, these J curves. By the time you get to be like above um, above 130 minutes a week, you start losing the benefit. You, you know, just the longevity different. benefit would be the same as if you weren't doing anything. And if you're doing more than about um, three or four hours a week, you have you know have have a worse long term survival than people who don't lift weights. And I don't We're know why it's worse than being sedentary. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why that is. Like with with aerobic or vigorous exercise. You're still way better off, even if you're doing a lot of vigorous exercise, way yeah. better off. Sedentary people, you lose some of the benefit, but you're not mm-hmm. worse off. And this, and I don't know if it has to do with the people that are doing too much weightlifting. Maybe they're doing a lot of, you know, steroids, or maybe, or or maybe it's like when you're doing really heavy weightlifting, your blood pressure does get above 200 lots of times, and maybe it's just mm-hmm. too much work on your heart. You know, uh, I don't know what it is, but it fits with my intuition is that a couple of sessions of 20 to 40 minutes of weight training a week on non-consecutive days is a really important thing to add to your, to yeah, your, but it's the key point in word you said is add. It is not to be done exclusively because you'd get you'd be far, far better off to take that time and just walk. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Just go for yeah. a walk, especially outdoors, outdoor walking. You know, there are studies showing that improving mood and even cognitive, like sort of uh, functioning, is better with outdoor exercise, especially if you can do it around like, you know, some, some, some trees or, or body of water or, you know, grass, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's really, there's, again, it just, it just settles our subconscious mind down and gets us back in the milieu to which we are adapting. Yeah. And your paper, which is available free on PubMed, you can download this paper, read the whole thing. Um, it's you talk about nature. Is it nature walking or some t- some type of nature yeah, activity? Yeah, it's called forest bathing. Mm-hmm. Forest, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, the, but the group of exercises. That's if you're in the forest. But, but basically, being in nature when you're when you're moving is the key. Yeah, yeah. and especially like like you should try to get. There was a really cool study done in the UK where they looked at the dose of nature per week that correlated with good health, and it was mm-hmm. like you needed at least like an hour and a half or two hours outdoors and it doesn't have to be you know you don't have to go to a national park but just get out to a local park mm-hmm. or a tree line street or you know and, and and so that's like you know when you think about it like like at least three 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 walks a week three or four walks a week where you get out in nature um 
and uh, and then the the um, the forest bathing thing is really interesting. These are Japanese people who are living in Tokyo, you know, one of the biggest cities in the world, and they will get on a bullet train, and an hour or two later be even an hour later be at the mountains and in the forest and they go hike around or even just sit you know uh, in, in nature and smell the pine and the fresh air and then and then they get on the bullet train and go back home and and they show reductions in blood pressure and improvement in mood and and there's you know there's really really strong benefits and and it's also benefits like that you know I, I've really gotten conscious of this myself is that from time to time um, go someplace where you can kind of be in awe of nature, you know, something that's like like the mountains or the sea or and just, you know, one of my favorite things is when I'm swimming outdoors. I love to swim outdoors is flip over on my back and do a back a kind of a gentle backstroke and, mm -hmm. and stare at the clouds going by, you know, mm -hmm. and that is also very mesmerizing and calm your system down. There's something about looking at a blue sky, like listening to the watching the waves or you know, mm -hmm. looking at looking at, at trees, uh, you know, just really like focus on that and take your headphones out and, you know, and appreciate the beauty of nature. And it will definitely it's been shown to, you know, calm your mood and 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 reduce anxiety and uh, improve sleep and all those kinds of things that are important for well-being. Yeah, I think part of that has to be exposure to the sun, sunlight on your skin. Completely. You know, agree. We know it has so many benefits. You know, vitamin D is only one of many right. others. Right. As a cardiologist, Joe, um, one of the things I love about sunlight is even if you have sunscreen on, um, the uh, you get this big boost in nitric oxide, which is the you know the thing produced by the endothelium lining all the veins and arteries throughout our body and brain, and and that increases nitric oxide, which dilates blood vessels and makes them more soft and supple and and, and less likely to clot, kind of. It's sort of a, 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 like a Teflon-like effect. So it's super good for your whole cardiovascular system, body and brain, to get out there in the sunshine. And people worry about, oh, my God, like the, the dermatologists are always like trying to, you know, scare us about being out in the sun like like we're like naked mole rats, like you were talking about, you know. Like we're involved to be outdoor creatures, you know. You have to keep in mind the sun, the sunlight that, that you were adapted for. Like if you came from Northern Europe, your ancestors, then, you know, in midday sun in Florida in the summer, you're, you know, you're going to get sunburned and you're going to get in trouble. But the point is that, that, um, 7,000 people a year die of melanoma in the United States, which seems like a lot, although it's, you know, you know, it's, it's a disease that, you know, affects a lot of people, you know, it's unusual to die of squamous cell or basal cell, but melanoma will kill you, you know, so we want to avoid that and you want to avoid sunburns. Um, but last year, 108,000 people died of, of recreational drug overdose, mostly opioids, but other things, 108,000. I thought it was more, 180, not 108, 108. No, no, I thought it was 108. It was 108. That's more than all the gunshot wounds, um, motor vehicle accidents, and breast cancer put together Yeah. per year. I mean, this is a huge, and, and so that's a problem of like, like mental health. You know, I mean, no, it's like no question. Yeah, no question. disease of desperation, like, like get outside in the sunshine. It'll perk you up. It'll make you happy. Go play with your yeah. friends. Go get a dog that, you know, you, you won't be so susceptible to, to drugs and, and, and keep in mind, yeah, you have to be a little careful about the sun, but you have to be more careful to, to like cultivate these habits in your life that, that keep you mentally healthy.
Yeah, that is the first module in my master class is sun exposure. So I'm really a big fan of that. But I, and I want to come back to this, especially your comment about melanoma and sun exposure. But before I do that, I want to finish up the resistance training because, and you may not be aware of this, but I suspect you are because you're pretty literate on these things. Uh, but there's two types of resistance training generically. One is the conventional training where you're going to typically 70, 80, maybe even 90% of your one rep max. The amount, the most amount of weight you can move through one complete full range of motion, one repetition. And I, it seems like that would be most of the research that it was evaluated on. So you're really pushing yourself and you're, you're pushing your body to its maximal physical limits. The alternative strategy is something that's relatively new. It's called blood flow resistance training, although it's been, been figured out 50 years ago by a Japanese researcher and just introduced into the United States in about 15 years ago. Uh, and the, it was originally by this Japanese, uh, the scientist developed a company called Katsu, K-A-T-S-U, and uh, it's a Japanese word for meaning additional pressure, where it essentially, are you familiar with that? Yeah. Okay. So this, this is the question I have for you, because I really, really want your insights on this um, and your thoughts, because you, you, you've got a deep knowledge, and I would really love to hear what you're, you, you, you believe it is. But it seems to me that, that you could probably go longer because you're not pushing it as much. Now, you, you'll, you'll be metabolically tired. You, you know, you'll get increased lactate levels, and you'll, but it's, you use weights that are literally 70% lower than you would in conventional training. So, it, and it gets closer to the movement than, it, than really hardcore resistance training. So what's your gut feeling tell you? Can you go longer than that, the time limits you were talking about, like two hours a week? So, Joe, I'm just going to be uh, frank with you. I'm, I'm, I know about it. I've never done it myself. I'm, I'm just really, you know, um, well, okay. I, you, you, you don't have to be an expert in, I've been doing it for like five years, but you don't have to be an expert. So what's your intuition? You think it really helps? Oh, I know it helps. I mean, it's far more effective. You know, it, it you know, it, you're such a strong advocate for resistance. I'm sorry. Is it kind of painful? I've heard that. You no, know, no, it should never be painful. Oh. Uh, you build a tolerance over time to the pressure and you develop these metabolic adaptations, but, the, the reason it's so beautiful is because you're using such a low weight. The, the, one of the re main reasons, if you're going to engage in resistance training, almost everyone, almost everyone gets injured. Yeah. Because, that, you don't do it at first. Yeah. You have to build up gradually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But almost everyone does. Talk to a trainer, you know, to kind of. Yeah. Even if you have a trainer, you can still get injured. So yeah. it's like really, really hard to get injured with Katsu because the weights are so low. So I'm thinking because you're, you know, you're not really pushing this heavy, heavy weight. And, get, and really getting to the point where you can't move the next day, that that doesn't qualify into the same type of resistance training as that was analyzed in the study. And I think you might be able to get away with more. I'm not saying a lot more, but, you know, maybe closer to three hours a week. Does, yeah, that, does, that, does that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah. Like I said, I just don't know enough about it. And um, yeah, being, again, being a cardiologist, it, 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 it just makes you a little nervous about like restricting blood flow while you're exercising. Oh, yeah, no, they, you, and well, you should be, uh, the, the, the pressure is such that it, it doesn't stop the arterial flow. It, it is not a tourniquet. It is not a tourniquet. Just the venous return. Yeah. yeah. So, so the metabolic byproduct exercise. Like, uh, lactic, lactic acid in the muscles and yeah, the lactic increases so really high, but, but it really causes profound 
benefits. There's no question. But they've looked at this specifically. There's lots of studies that have been done on it, and there's no increase in blood clots. But that's that's an appropriate concern, absolutely. No, but if, if you just go, go out and take a band and do a tourniquet, that's a problem. You don't want to do that. <laughs> Definitely don't want to. See, the Katsu device is it's a compressor and it dials into a very specific pressure, so you can't ever shut the shut the pressure off. Yeah, yeah. So one other thing that that I kind of like to touch on a little bit is you know there people think of a. a sort of fitness and and the important point about that too is there's no question and maybe you can show that graph from our uh, recent review Mm -hmm. um, that shows that fitness is one of the most powerful predictors of long-term mortality and Mm -hmm. uh, and so the more fit you are the better your life expectancy and so some people would say well that doesn't really fit with what you were talking about a minute ago when you said that that vigorous exercise after about 75 to 150 minutes a week, you really don't get further benefit. And at real high levels, like several hours a week, you can lose some of the benefit. So you'd think that more is better for vigorous exercise for getting fit. But And so that's a bit of a paradox. The way I resolve that is to think that there's a lot of, F, there's a lot of different things in fitness. Like, like, you know, if you're overdoing exercise, um, I have a good friend who is a, who's a very good cyclist and He's about 65 and he says, uh, you know, like he's the, he's like the last man standing in his age group doing competitive cycling, you know, because it's like you get all these injuries and that and that's what, the last thing you want to do is go and injure yourself and then become sedentary. It's like you want to try to maintain fitness, which you do with this multifaceted approach, some play, some outdoor exercise, some strength training, lots of walking, gardening, getting a dog, you know, playing with your friends. Like I uh, grew up in, in North Dakota near the Canadian border, and my mother used to tell us all the time as kids. She said, "Go outside and play with your friends, and I don't want you to see till till lunch." You know, and that's <laughs> what I tell my Go outside, play with your friends, and, and, and try to do it a few times a week anyway. But it's like you, um, I think that it's really important to to have that multifaceted uh, exercise, and and also to eat right, and to get your sleep, and to avoid substance abuse, and those things. And, and maintain an optimal body composition. And those things confer fitness too. So that fitness is not just about like hammering vigorous exercise. You wanna get plenty of exercise, but you also need you need to pay attention to those other things. But there's another element to fitness. So there's, we've talked about cardio, we've talked about vigorous and moderate exercise, we've talked about strength training. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there's also balance is part of fitness. A lot of people lose their balance and fall. And that that's a, that's a common cause of, of morbidity and mortality in older people. And also, um, like body composition and flexibility. Right. Mm -hmm. And so things like yoga or Tai Chi are another really good thing. And that's a group activity that tends to, you know, improve mood and make friends and, uh, and, and cultivate a sense of well being physically and mentally. But there's a really interesting, um, test called the fit the sit rise test that we talked about mm-hmm. in the paper too where and it's kind of tricky um like you if you're going to try this it sounds real simple you know you're just standing and then you like put your ankle one one foot in front of the other so your ankles are crossed and then you squat down sit down and then you stand back up and um if you can do that without touching elbow or hand or, or down does your butt hit the floor yeah your butt hits the floor so you're sitting on the floor sitting on the floor and uh, and your feet are up, at least off the floor, just for a, a, even a millisecond. So you're sitting all the way down, and then you stand back up. 
if you can do that, that is, if you can do that without touching hand, and then you lose one point for each hand or elbow that goes down. If you have to get on all four to get down and then get on all four to get back up, then, and, and, you know, for a lot of people, that's the reality. Okay. Yeah. You'd get, you get minus four for going down and minus four for coming up. A 10 is a perfect score. If you can sit down and stand up without using your hands or your elbows or your knees, that's a 10. If you can do, if you can, you, t if you can do that, in this in this study of two thousand people followed for seven years, like virtually, I think there was one or two people who died during that study. It, it makes you almost bulletproof. Uh, and and uh, even if you can get uh, a score of eight, which you you know put one hand down on the way down, one hand up, way up. I mean, in other words, that simple test, which is is a test of of flexibility, strength, balance, body composition. If you have a mm -hmm. you know, if you have a big belly, it's gonna be it's, yeah, it's not it's gonna be really hard. Yeah. So that that is as almost as powerful as any test that we could do to predict lung. And by the way, it's very trainable. You know, it's it's you can you can practice this and get get better at it. And uh, it just speaks to the fact that that fitness is a multifaceted thing, and um, and and you need to work on all those different things. All right. Well, let's pivot to the another component of that, which is the diet. Uh, it's particularly appropriate because your wife is a nutritionist, and that's why you're in Kansas City. And yep. not in Mayo Clinic, probably a professor of medicine at Mayo. <laughs> so the comp reason I wanted to pivot there is that it's, there's a connection between the melanoma, which I wanted to get back to. Because I've studied the, the research on the vitamin D and written papers on it. And, you know, that's clearly one of the concerns. And I couldn't agree with you more. You, you, you really never want to get sunburned. But what causes sunburn and what causes melanoma? There doesn't appear to be any direct connection between sunlight and melanoma. In fact, most melanomas are in non-sun exposed areas of the skin. What does increase is basal and squamous cell carcinoma. No question about it. And I don't know the death rates from that. It's really hard to die from that because it's so obvious and easily treatable. But nevertheless, people die from it. And But the question becomes... Because whatever causes sunburn is likely contributing to the cancers. And the common denominator, as far as I can tell, is the excess of seed oils in the diet. More specifically, omega-6 fats, and more specifically than that, a specific fatty acid called linoleic acid, which is 18-carbon fat. And it's, it's a PUFA, polyunsaturated fatty acid, and it's predisposed to oxidative stress. So when you have sunlight in shining on your skin and their skin is loaded with high levels of linoleic acid. And most people are now today because the levels we have are exponentially higher than they were hundred years ago, exponentially higher. And that, that is basically what is the precursor, the, the highest risk factor for getting cancer in general, but specifically skin cancer, which is the most common cancer in, in the United States is skin cancer. Most people die from it, but it's still the most common cancer. Uh, I think the most common cancer women die from is clearly breast cancer. I, I think, I don't know. I forget what it is for men, either prostate or colon, maybe lung. I don't know, but it's up there. But anyway, when you have, when you lower the linoleic acid, you radically reduce your risk of not only sunburn, and this is well-documented, but also skin cancers. It goes away. And I, I live in Florida and I'm pretty much out on the beach every day for an hour at solar noon. At solar noon, <laughs> and I never wear sunblock. Never wear sunblock. My vitamin D levels were consistently near or over 100 nanograms per milliliter, and 
Without a supplement? Without a supplement. I haven't taken a supplement in 15 years. Wow. Vitamin D supplement. No. Yeah. So, you know, you, 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 you have to eat well to do that too. And you need enough magnesium uh, and vitamin K2, because those are all cofactors for making sure that your body is able to produce the, the vitamin D. But I, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, if you lower linoleic acid, you, you can, your, your fear, which is appropriate. I mean, there's a reason people get sunburned and a reason people get skin cancer, because I don't think our ancestors did hardly at all. They really didn't. They weren't dying of cancer. And this is, you know, I, I would like to get your comment because it's really uncommon for me to connect with a high level cardiologist like yourself. But it, as I was putting together my paper, because I wrote a paper on Little Lake S, a narrative review, about the same time your paper was published, maybe a little earlier. Um, and the, where was I going with it? Uh, oh, the, 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 the literature I looked at was the incidence of heart disease prior to 1900 it was very, very low. I mean, it almost didn't exist mm -hmm. in the United States. Rarely. And in fact, the first reported case of heart attacks, legitimate heart attacks in the United States was 1912. I think James Herrick reported it. That's, 100, that's 110 years, 11 years ago. I mean, it didn't exist. We're going from a disease that didn't exist to the, essentially the number one killer of most adults. That's in, in a century, in a century. That's pretty, I mean, did you ever think, what, what's your explanation for that? Because, I mean, that clearly is not genetics. Genes don't change in a few generations. No. Uh, and it's it, not exercise. It can't be exercise, can't explain it. No, it's a multifactorial thing, obviously, but, um, but a big part of it is that um, our, our environment, our food environment, our move, movement environment, our, the amount of stress, our social structure, all those things are so drastically different. Um, cholesterol levels are much higher. If you look at pictures of people from back then, they're obesity. Know, like, yeah, there's no obesity. I mean, they, it, like even in medical school, and at the medical school, they, they always talked about, you know, the average 70 kilogram man, which is 154 pounds, which is, you know, skinny by today's standards. That's about mm -hmm. what I am. But, you know, that was the norm. And now mm -hmm. the norm, 72% of people are overweight or obese in America. So, you know, and it's not their fault. It's just this, like, you know, this food environment we live in and all the marketing and everything. So it's, um, it's, it's a complex thing. And, um, and, but it does speak to the fact that like longevity, heart disease, all these things, this genetics are not the most important thing. By far the most important thing is your lifestyle, diet, mm -hmm. exercise, sleep, those kinds of things, getting sunshine, you know, gardening, getting a dog, getting you, you know, these are the things that will make the difference in the long run. And you want to keep, know what your blood pressure is and know what your lipids are and that kind of stuff. But the most important thing that has gone so badly in the last hundred years, and again, nobody's fault, but it's just the environment we live in. We, it's, it's, we're victims of our own success. We can afford cars. We don't have to walk places. We don't have to take stairs. We don't have to build things or carry things. And we don't, you know, we sit in front of these smart computers and we eat all this, you know, tasty, you know, sugar, uh, added sugar, you know, refined feed oils. So it's really, it's the combination of these lifestyle factors, which are, you know, highly modifiable. Like, you know, you, mm -hmm. just, have to, you just have to take the path less traveled. You have to make a point to, you know, to prioritize 
these types of exercise, we're talking about the prioritize avoiding all that processed food with the refined seed oils and, and, and all that junk food and the added sugar. This is like, we'll, we'll make the difference for mental health and physical health and longevity and, and, yeah. and all that. I agree more. And, and usually the, the simplest recommendation to adjust your lifestyle, because it's, it's really much covers almost the whole thing is to avoid all processed foods because yep. that's where the stuff is from. Yep. All processed foods. And well, very few physicians will argue with that. Complain. I mean, but if you do that, that almost solves the problem. There's a lot of other things that you have to fine tune, but that's the number one rule. Number yep. one rule. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's, it's bad eating broccoli and nuts and fish and uh, yeah. Well, red meat. You could. I, I would argue that you could get fat eating nuts because nuts, especially. See, in my view, you know, I'm biased. I, I'm really a, a strong proponent of linoleic acid being the, the primary etiology of most most diseases: cancer, obesity. Obesity, interestingly, at the same time when heart disease didn't exist, there was still. 1% of the population, 1%, 1,000 people of 100,000 were obese back then. So even though 45% are obese today, heading towards 50%, that's only a 45% increase. But when you go from maybe 70 people out of 100,000 to 30%, that's like 5 million times increase, 5 million times of heart disease. It's like mind boggling. Yeah. It's just so shocking. But anyway, getting those... The, the reason I, 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 you know, the amount of linoleic acid in people's tissue is, is as I mentioned, 10 times higher. It's like 12% as on average, and it's supposed to be under 2%, under 2%. So it's, it's om, well, almost exponentially, but it's still, and it's the primary source of calories, linoleic acid. So it's in the tissues. So even any additional source of linoleic acid, when you're loaded with this stuff and you haven't engaged in a, in a regular process, or a regular strategy of eliminating processed foods from your diet, it's going to make it worse. So nuts are loaded with linoleic acid, except for macadamia. So you've got it. I mean, that's what you don't have to, you don't have to avoid them like the plague. But if you have like pounds of nuts a day, it's, it's a problem. It, it's going to just put a load of omega-6 in your diet, in your tissue, actually. So anyway. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, it's it's because it's because your your specialty is preventive cardiology, right? Right. So what do you, and what do you when when a patient sees you, what is your uh, strategy? What is your approach? I mean, obviously you do a, a workup and everything, but what what is your recommendation? Cardio wellness clinic, uh, Dubai Cardio Wellness Clinic, and we also have the Cardio Metabolic Clinic and. So so we look at people, and you know, I'm in a group of cardiologists. There's 67 of us, and 50 wow. So it's a really big group. And so there's a lot. And I'm the only one who's really passionate and because there's so much work to be done with, you know, stents and pacemakers and ablations and, you know, all that stuff. But um, and that's important, too. But but prevention is just so um, foundational and fundamental. And it works so well these these days. We really, really know. And so, so we get people in here. We often will do a cardio scan, which is a low-level CT scan. Just look for um, for what's for, the what's the radiation doing this, and how do people find that locally? Um, you know, most we call it a cardio scan, but it's like CT coronary calcium screening. Yeah, it's yeah. low dose. If you go to a place with modern machines, that's like it'll be about one millisievert, which 
It's like in Florida, you get about three and a half millisieverts a year just from cosmic radiation and, and background radiation. What is a chest X-ray? Chest X-ray would be um, would be quite a lot less than one millisievert. That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. But but this would be you know this would still be like say living in Denver, you'd get five and a half millisieverts uh, a year. So. Wow. You so know, it's still acceptable. So it's acceptable. You know, you wouldn't want to be yeah. getting this all the time, but like it's a very limited CT scan, just looking at the heart. Um, I, I call it like the mammogram for the heart. You ought to get one but, like for- but How do you find it locally? How do you find you it? Around, you could, uh, you know, on the internet, you could, if you can find, you can find people doing this. We charge $50, $50 for it. We use oh it like, my gosh. Yeah. Really? Because, yeah, just because- you know, you don't know about the atherosclerosis until it blows wow. up. You know, with a stroke or a heart attack or sudden death, and and do it's you, so it's so modifiable. So, do you think that is the best in your mind? Is that the best screen for atherosclerosis? Yeah, that's the best. It is plus most easily proven screen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, that's what I thought. But it's nice to have that confirmed. Yeah. Uh, and what it would be an acceptable score yeah. in your mind? And is it? Zero is normal. Okay, it should be zero. Our artery should be soft and supple and smooth and no calcium. The old-fashioned term for atherosclerosis was hardening of the arteries, and it is pretty apt as 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 the mm -hmm. disease progresses. It gets calcified. These these soft, supple you know tubes turn into these rigid pipes, crusty mm -hmm. pipes that are all inflamed. And so, I mean, the lower the better. We don't really have therapies to reduce the um, calcification in fact statins if anything accelerate the calcification even though the, they help to reduce risk of heart attack and stroke and cardiovascular death so we um you know and the the, the record i've seen and i've probably read 150,000 of these scans myself we do you wow. know 40 of them a day you know and um and it's a pretty simple reading thing but um but the highest i've seen is 13,500 you know wow. uh, like Less than 100 is pretty mild. 100 to 400 is moderate. 400 to 1,000 is significant. And above 1,000 severe. And uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have this and, and don't know about it. And so it's a, it's it's a good tool to use. Yeah, it sounds like it. It's really good. So a good screen. Don't do it regularly. No, uh, I mean that. You know, zero score will will repeat it in five years. You know, just to to see. Um, and if you have a high score, like I don't. I mean, sometimes I, 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 I will repeat it, but you know, if you have a high score, we just need to be aggressive about getting these risk factors. What, what's, what's the most aggressive resolution you've seen or amazing success story with an intervention? I mean, going from like uh, thousand know, down to zero, from fourteen hundred to twelve hundred, uh, something like that, and you know, that's, that's so that's, no one's go, no one's going from a thousand to zero. No, never happened. Never. Happened. What's what's the biggest reduction to zero you've ever seen? Um, it doesn't happen. Once you're up there, you just can't get back to you know, zero. If you have little specs and you do everything right, you can, you know, but this changes really drastic changes. I've seen it go from, from 10 or 20 to zero. Okay. So thank you. Thank you for painting the parameters and the guidelines around yeah. how to analyze and, it. And Joe, the most important thing about plaque is not the calcium. That's not what causes the heart attacks. It's like the, mm -hmm. it's the cholesterol that gets underneath the surface of the mm -hmm. Intima, the oxidized LDL that gets inflamed, and then it it's like a zit on our face that, that mm -hmm. we had as teenagers. At least I did. They get this white head, and it gets red and inflamed, and then the skin uh, overlying dermis thins out, and that ruptures and drains. And when it's, it's on the skin, it'll heal that way. But in the 
in the arteries when you have a zit that full of pus and and uh, and triglyceride and oxidized LDL, it's very um, it's very sort of thrombogenic and the ruptures and then the and then platelets adhere to it over and it can it can propagate to occlude the vessel altogether and that's how you have a heart attack or a stroke. So we want to get that oxidized LDL and triglycerides out of the surface of the arteries and that's where if we get the cholesterol down and you know eat that diet we're talking about and follow these lifestyle things you can really make a lot of progress. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just curious you, there were 67 other cardiologists in your yeah. practice? Yeah. So is the is the title of the practice preventive cardiology or is that oh, your no, son? No, 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 I'm in the, it's called the uh, St. Luke's of Kansas City, Mid-America okay. Heart. So you're a subset of preventive cardiology. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, I just work in the group and I, you know, I round in the hospital and I read scans and, you know, I'm a general cardiologist. Um, you don't uh, do any uh, interventional cardiologists like that? No, I was trained in it, but, but I, I yeah, really became passionate about prevention instead because, wow. you know, I think it's a, it's a neglected area that's so effective. I mean, this is just so, so modifiable, this disease. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's definitely an anomaly. You're an anomaly. <laughs> Congratulations well, for being a renegade. <laughs> thanks Joe. And it's, it's been great chatting with you. In fact, they're texting you there texting me over at the hospital now, so I'm gonna have to get going, but. Okay, uh, all right, well, thanks so much. You keep up the good work. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Okay, bye now.